Welcome to the Techmo Podcast, where we talk all things tech and startup in the Denton community. My name is Kyle Taylor. And I'm David Bruno. Let's get started. Welcome to the Techno Podcast, where we talk all things tech startup here in the Den community. <laughs> you got me giggling. <laughs> That's not my fault. Oh my gosh. Okay, today we're here sitting with Daniel Abasolo, our local space lawyer of and other things. Uh, Daniel, thanks for being on the show. I've never said that line. Hey, happy to be here, Kyle. <laughs> thanks for having me. Is that that was like a real radio intro? It was yeah. great. That was great. Yeah. Um, Okay, so without further ado, David, let's just let's just start this thing. <laughs> All right, first question, and you can pick the more interesting of these two, either how you got to Denton or why you chose to come to Denton or some mixture. So Denton, I didn't ever come to Denton until I was almost done with law school, and I met a girl in law school who's now my wife, and she was from the colony, and we came back for holidays and I always liked Denton and then we tried our hand at being Austin lawyers this was in law school she's a lawyer too and that didn't work out every bartender is a lawyer in Austin so we we ran out of there this was 2010 the rock bottom of the legal market so we got out of Austin with our tails between our legs and came back to the Metroplex and Laura had gone to uh, UNT, and she liked Denton, and I liked Denton. It was the only place that kind of felt like home in the Metroplex, so we just kind of picked here. She's got a a gig at the district attorney's office, and then I kind of made my way through the civil world up here. cool thing about Denton is it's kind of a small town, but a lot of people have to come to our courthouse, so it's a good place to be a lawyer if you like a small town. (laughs) We've got a nice built-in market that just has to show up here and go to your court, so I get... (laughs) Five-minute commutes and clients. That's a great recipe. Oh, man. So so were you ever in Denton before Austin, and then you were just like, oh, this is cool. No, first time I got here was 2010. And even in 2010, Denton was way different than it is now. Mm -hmm. I remember the square had, I think, Abbey Inn just had opened, and that was about it. In turn, like Abbey Inn and Andy's was about it for (laughs) for the square. Uh, maybe Dan's down there. I mean, it was pretty. It was it was pretty desolate even even in 2010. It's really grown a lot in just the seven years since then that we've been around here. Yeah. So so yeah, that was the first time I'd ever been to Denton. Hadn't spent much time in the Metroplex other than that. But I've really you know I sort of can't imagine living anywhere else now. It's a it's a great place to be. I love it. Yeah. And so you're not from here. You're from Montana. Right. I grew up in a little town in eastern Montana called Miles City. It is about if you know Montana and you know Eastern Montana, which is really cutting down the audience, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, it's about two hours east of Billings on I-90. So, so yeah, it's a tiny little town by Texas standards, really big by by Montana standards. Um, we had the Walmart, so a lot of people had to come to our small town again. So sort of a theme <laughs> in my life, I guess. <laughs> I remember growing up in Sanger. I, I mean, when I was in like middle school, I think it was. 4,000 people like population and we always rated our city based on like if you had a grandies or not you knew you made it <laughs> like Gainesville had a grandies we're like they were a little further ahead of us <laughs> they could be you could tell how excited we were when Sonic rolled in <laughs> um, so so we all know you as this family civil lawyer guy and you had 
you know, so you get out of law school and you were a tech, Texas tech grad, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so then you were in Austin, you guys came here. So what, I guess my intro to the lawyer track, like what made you want to get into law to begin with? You know, when I think back on it, it doesn't, I just had a son recently, so I've been trying to imagine how I'll answer that, what what will I be when I grow up kind of question, because I remember having that question as when I was young, but I always kind of knew the answer. I've, I feel like I always was going to be a lawyer, like this was always going to be what I did, and I just finally resigned to it when I was a freshman in college, like, I guess fine, I'm just going to be a lawyer. <laughs> I was already a philosophy major at the time, I mean, it just, it was pretty obvious i think so i don't know if i remember a time when it was a choice it was just like the thing i was gonna do i've always loved to write and argue and this just seems like how you work for me this is what work is to me is is writing arguments and and representing people i guess it just made a lot of sense so i don't remember a a moment of decision your what you just described was the online comment section like of a blog post (laughs) i like to write and i like to argue (laughs) yeah could have have been a turn for the worse Uh, yeah (laughs) been a lot less productive than it has been (laughs) so so you you also kind of uh is it is it a thing that lawyers have a focus for the most part? Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm one of the less focused lawyers, which is maybe not the the top line on my resume. It should be that I'm one of the less focused lawyers. I've sort of pared it down. Um, I don't know. I mean, my interests are pretty varied, so I've let myself do a lot of things. And I think if there's anything that's weird about me as a lawyer is that I'm sort of, I'm slightly less risk averse and I'm more trusting in myself. If I think something's interesting, I'm going to take a client and go for it, try to try to learn something new. Um, but there's things I've come back to representing businesses and more transactional litigation with contracts and, and startups and stuff is, is obviously one of them. It's how I know y'all. And then family law. Um, I'm kind of a salacious gossipy person on the inside <laughs> so family law is you know you deal with real people and they're real real problems and uh i'm good at it and i enjoy it so i've kept doing that <laughs> nice um so yeah i mean uh talking about how how we met you or actually how i met you was kevin had put on one of his you know fancy mixers that he had done and uh i got up there and i pitched this you know is that rubber gloves and pitches open denton open data concept and I remember like coming down off the stage and you're like, you know what? You probably shouldn't just release like a ton of data. I'm like <laughs> I can help you with that legally. You, you don't want to release all these things. So uh, I think that was the first time I ever met you. And shortly after that, we had kind of all come together and like, you know, you, me, Dave, Marshall, whoever mm-hmm. else, uh, Clarissa, and we all kind of formed Techmo. So like what, I mean, what kind of got you into the technology sector in general? So, I've always been kind of a nerd for gadgets and 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 sort of technology culture. I'm not going to say I'm technical in that I know any languages that I can code with with any level of competence. I mean, I've maybe took some courses in college, but that's about the extent of it. I think on, you know, on the lawyer scale of technical, I'm way at the top end, but on the y'all scale of technical, I'm way down at the <laughs> other end. Um, so it's just something I've I've always liked to I've always been the paperless lawyer. I've always been like, let me streamline this for efficiency. And just because I think that stuff is cool, I've always wanted to be the technology lawyer in terms of just the way I operate my practice. And it seemed like a really natural fit in terms of like a client base that I was going to be excited to to serve. So you, 
you know, you got to deal with these people every day. So you want clients that are interesting that you want to go have lunch with every now and then. And that's the way, that's the way representing startups kind of came to me is that, especially when I started doing it, it was about, gosh, four, four or five years ago now. Um, I was doing family law and bankruptcy, and then I was representing cities. And when I say cities, I mean like dealing with their sort of real estate issues and then representing them in ticket court. So generally I was, you know, I was giving people a ticket or they were bankrupt or they were getting a divorce. Generally a pretty miserable set of people. (laughs) So you want to get out and, and see people that are building stuff. And, you know, I'm interested in, in taking a risk and starting something new and in technology in general. And it was a great way to sort of deal with people that were building something exciting instead of fighting. Yeah. So, so you had, uh, from the time that I've known you, you have gone from a practice and then you went solo and then you went back to a practice. So mm-hmm. what that in kind of like an entrepreneurial question mindset, what made you want to go solo for you were like a year or so, right? Yeah, a little over a year. Um, so I started out with a, with the biggest firm in Denton and I was with them for about three years. And it was a really good thing for a young lawyer to be with a big firm because the business of law is not taught in law school, like the way you make money as a lawyer. Like you learn law that you never apply in real world. Like you learn just a, a whole bunch of big picture national law that's sort of broadly applicable and will get you through the multi-state portion of the the bar exam. Then you take a few courses on, on um, how to conduct yourself in a hearing or a trial and a few courses in, in Texas law. And then you, you're let loose and you have no idea how, how to make money with this thing you have, this law license you have. And, and so working for a, a big firm kind of teaches you that business of law, like how to, how to track whether you're being efficient with your billable hours, what your effective rate is. You know, you might tell clients one thing, but at the end of the month, how much money did you actually collect per hour? Things like that, um, whether your staff is paying for itself, whether your overhead is paying for itself. So all those things are really great to know. And then just you're no kind of lawyer if you don't have clients. And big firms have clients. So you get to go around for the, to the partners and hit them up for, for whatever kind of thing that they're doing that you think is interesting. And I did a lot of that. And that firm was also really good at letting me get involved in, in the community, which is a big thing for me. I've always been... Well, I haven't always been, but since I've been in Denton, I've always really wanted to be involved in the community, and they were really good about that because as as lawyers, it has a practical benefit. I mean, I need people to think of me when they think of a lawyer and call me when they have a problem. So <laughs> if I get out and meet a lot of people, hopefully that's what they do. So that all those things were really good when I was at Big Firm Life. Um, and I say big firm. I mean, it's big by Denton standards, which is like 10 lawyers. It's not big firm. It's not like I'm at some thousand lawyer mega firm. Um, it's big by Denton standards, which is a way different thing. But anyway, I, after about three years, I kind of realized I was, you know, I had a book of business and I wanted a, basically a bigger cut of that book of business. <laughs> and I love the partners there. I still get on great with them and, you know, I still send them business and they send me business and they're great guys. But and just was a business decision. I wanted to go out on my own and, and try that. Being solo is really cool as a lawyer because, you know, we we bill a lot. And so you get to keep all that money. But then you're doing every single thing yourself. You're like licking the stamps and going to the hearings and everything in between. <laughs> and that, you know, it you don't actually have to bill many hours uh, to to 
make a good living. But when you get to where you're billing a lot of hours, you know, pull your hair out because you have all these professional responsibilities to your clients, obviously. And so you can't let anything slip through the cracks. And it got to a point where I was busy, where I, you know, after a year of doing it on my own, I was super busy and I was either going to staff up and, and that's sort of like that Jim Gaffigan joke about having five kids where some, you're drowning, somebody hands you a baby. <laughs> like the notion of like that I'm underwater with work and now I have to go lease a bigger space and move into it and hire staff and deal with all that. Seems like somebody handing me a baby. And so these guys that I, I knew and trusted had had capacity in their in their book of business for, for what I do. Um, they had lost a transactional attorney and a, a family law attorney recently. And happens to be what I do. And they had staff and an office and it seemed a whole lot easier to just go over there. <laughs> How convenient. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, now I'm, you know, working with them. We in, in the law, you'd call it eat what you kill. So I basically just take a cut of my, I don't have a salary, I take a cut of my, my hours and I, I do my own thing. I have a ton of freedom. I can do what I want, represent who I want. And it doesn't really feel like I have a boss in that sense. But I still have, you know, malpractice insurance and staff and and all those good things. So that's kind of the trajectory. Being on my own was was cool in terms of the entrepreneurial aspect of like getting all the rewards, taking all the risks. Um, but a, a year is a good amount of time to do it. And I was, <laughs> I was ready to be done at the end of that year. I was ready to let somebody else worry about some of that stuff. <laughs> um, so in, I don't know if it was, I want to say it was before that. So um, at that point in time, you had also started doing stuff for Cubos and even, I mean, was Cubos your first startup that you were doing? Yeah, and certainly the one I've represented in depth the most. Mm-hmm. So the way, um, how did you how did you get involved in Cubos? <laughs> <laughs> well, I met him through TechMill. Uh, we all got started, and and Marshall was our first president of TechMill, and Marshall has a passion for writing code for the space industry, and he wanted to start this business, and they needed a lawyer. Um, space ends up having a huge legal burden with export control and then just any tech startup that wants to be high growth and, and do that kind of Silicon Valley model of, of high growth tech startup. It's going to just have a lot of legal requirements. And they had all those requirements and they didn't have any money, <laughs> which is also not <laughs> uncommon. And so I took a small cut and represented them basically on a hope and a prayer that they would someday be profitable and, and pay my invoices. <laughs> my stock would be worth something. And sure enough, they did and they are. So great. <laughs> so uh, I, the reason why I feel like I know a little bit more about you is because you went and did a nerd night talk about space law, which yeah. was hilarious. Like it, that could have been like a Netflix comedy special. It really could have been. Um, but so you talked a lot about all the different things you had to learn about space law, like export control, whatever the heck that means and whatever else. So for, for people that maybe didn't hear all the Cubos episodes, um, of this podcast, Cubos writes, uh, open source software for small satellites. So they end up, you know, interfacing with a lot of hardware OEMs. Um, and so we, it's open source software, but we still, to some extent, license proprietary stuff to those OEMs or to whoever we want to consult with. Um, and then just, you know, standard consulting development agreements and stuff like that. Um, so that's kind of my role. But then space is an industry. Um, it has all the things that you would think about, like, 
like let's say you wanted to build a helicopter or a drone or something like that, you would, uh, especially like a drone, you would imagine there's this sort of not well-settled legal environment that regulates drone flight, and that's absolutely the case. So you need somebody to navigate that really poorly understood area of law. But then you need all the other things that just conventional business needs on top of that, like you know contracts and HR and um, you know entity formation and uh, just everything that you you need a lawyer for. So so space law is kind of like all on top of the typical things that it would take anybody to develop some sort of technical product or software or hardware kind of product. Yeah. What has it like been as an experience for you? What has it been working in open source as a lawyer? Because we, in my, you know, when I work in open source and when you're talking about like different types of licenses and how you have to credit the authors and, mm-hmm. you know, package everything together, what can you sell? What can't you sell? Or what do you have to you know, put a subscription to and things like that. Like, so what has that experience been so far for you? Well, so far it's, you know, it's not what anybody expects as a lawyer. You're kind of grabby with everything. Like what's mine is mine. This is my (laughs) client stuff. Um, So you have to readjust that mindset that we're going to just give this away and we're going to hope for some contracts on the back end to to service or consult with people. Um, that's kind of the business model. We we give our software away, flood the market, and then we do service level agreements on the back end to to make money, basically. And so we're still in that flood the market stage, and we're just kind of getting to where we're we're getting revenue positive. Um, so it's been yeah, it's been a, an eye opening experience. But you know, it's not that hard just because it's open source. I mean, we're <laughs> put the license on there and have at it. That's the whole the whole benefit of the deal. Um, the interplay is, is tricky. I find that as lawyers, um, and I think as developers, you do a lot of this too. We just copy each other. Uh, lawyers have massive databases of form stock, and that's where all of us start everything. Nobody ever, you know, we write very like one percent of whatever our agreements is maybe new words, and everything else is just some form stock from some form that's been around forever. That's why the language is so arcane and ridiculous because it's just kind of passed down <laughs> through the generations. So that doesn't work as well for the open source community because it's so niche. Like you you get, you end up writing a lot of like, you know, if I'm going to write uh, a contract for some OEM that has a blend of proprietary and open source software in it where we're trying to license some stuff and we're trying to give away other stuff, basically, that's not a form. That's the thing I have to make myself. I have to combine forms, maybe. (laughs) Rocket science here. (laughs) But yeah, it's, you end up doing a lot more of the drafting yourself. And so I've, I've had to get to, to get better at that sort of, of, you know, doing it on my own, writing my own stuff because it's a, an industry that, I don't have a lot of mentors in. It's not like Denton is is thick with IP lawyers of any kind, much less open source space lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> so I've had. I to, think you're it. <laughs> yeah, it's the section of our county bar is pretty limited when it comes to <laughs> space law. Section of the Denton County Bar is member of one. <laughs> yeah, uh, David, do you have anything to add? No, not at the moment. Oh, okay. Unless you 
don't have anything. Well, I mean, I'm just I'm just gonna talk more space stuff. Well, yeah, sounds good. Yeah. So yeah. space, then stuff. I'll jump in. Well, so so specifically, um, I want to talk about. I mean, it's only because you've talked about it mm-hmm. so much, so I feel like it's important. Yeah. So you've talked about export control a lot. Yeah. Right. And so, you've gone to multiple workshops and mm-hmm. conferences for this. So yeah, I've been to conferences in like Houston and DC about export control. And export control is the notion that like there's certain technical products that American industry creates that we couldn't just, we don't want um, our enemies, frankly, to get their hands on. We want to protect the warfighter is what the Department of Defense or the Secretary of State would say, the, you know, maintain that edge, basically, to where where our soldiers have better technology than their soldiers. And so we can't have our private industry releasing stuff. It's basically like top secret, except as applied to industry. Um, and there's two layers of it. There's ITAR and there's EAR. ITAR is is super serious. Um, It's sort of strict liability. They don't care what you intended to do. If you screw this up, you're a traitor, kind of. Maybe they wouldn't call you a traitor, but it would be it'd be a real problem. It's kind of like that. You you know you'd go to jail. You'd pay millions of dollars. It would be a big problem. EAR is regulated by the Department of Commerce. It's administered by the Department of Commerce, and it's sort of a lower burden. Um, A lot of the stuff there's exemptions. You can just say you can just look at the code and say, I, I qualify for this exemption, so I'm not going to ask the government about it. Um, and most of, and export controls sort of fall somewhere along that spectrum. You have to classify the thing you're, you're working on, whether it's hardware or software. Everything from bananas to, to satellites is somewhere in this body of law. It's regulated at some level. Um, and so you have to classify whatever it is you're working on, and it can be classified really specifically. So, you know, the the software that runs the ground station is maybe different than the software that, that runs the satellite that tests the satellite that integrates the satellite with a rocket. All those will all be treated very differently with very differing levels of control and, and licenses required to export them to, and it's all dependent on the country too, as you might imagine, you can send a lot more stuff to Canada than you can to Iran. Um, so what? that, <laughs> that whole thing is a, it's a, it's a lot to know, and it's not something that I ever knew existed until I started dealing with 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 space company like Cubos and every space company. I mean, that ends up being the Tuesday afternoon of of your space law world is export control. Like, you know, I can talk a lot about about what amounts to space policy. You know, we had a, a space act a couple of years ago that allows or purports to allow American companies to profit from the their activities in space, like you could mine an asteroid and keep the mountains of platinum you get off of whatever asteroid and crash the whole world's economy with it. <laughs> um, or and there's the Outer Space Treaty of, of '67, which you know us and the Russians and the whole Cold War era countries signed, and that regulates man's activities in space. But a lot of that stuff boils down to like international law and space policy that. Practically speaking, no lawyers really apply. Maybe some congressional researchers look up that stuff and tell other presidents and congressmen about how to deal with it. But if you're going to actually represent a client in the space industry, most of what you're doing is IP and export control. And that's a lot of what I've done is is export control. And, you know, practically speaking, you, wouldn't, you would think that, you know, we're developing at Cubos uh, flight software for satellites, and that's obviously got some export control implications. I mean, as you might imagine, you could put that on whatever and, and crash your satellite into whoever, and then it's a weapon. So 
it has some pretty, it's a pretty straight line between what we're doing and, and something that could be weaponized. And the code treats it that way. It's controlled at a pretty high level, though not all the way up to ITAR. It's not all the way down at bananas either. Um, so basically, and there's a lot of software treated like this. Uh, underwater applications are too, and um, anything radiation hardened, obviously anything nuclear, biological, chemical. Um, just transmitting your code to a person you you know that is a foreigner, whether or not you know they're a foreigner, can get you in a lot of legal trouble. Even if you're not a business, even if you've never, you know, even if you're totally unaware of this arcane body of law, it applies to you if you're developing products that meet these technical specifications. So, like, if Kim Jong Un ever emails you and says, "I want your code," I mean, you think real long and hard about whether you <laughs> send it back to him. So, so how does that affect when your software is open source and it's on the internet? Ask it's that. Like, oh, man. Yeah. So. Normally, what you have to do if Kim Jong-un emails you and, hey, can I have code? And I, <laughs> and I say, no, Kim Jong-un. And, but Kim Jong-un maybe has a lot of money. And so I'm really thinking about it. Maybe I want to send this guy my code. Um, and so what I would have to do if I really seriously purported to do this is seek a license from the Department of Commerce or the Department of State as applicable. And, uh, you know, within you know, three to nine weeks, they would, or a year or whatever it is, they would get back to me and say, yes, you can do these limited things or no, you obviously can't do that. It's Kim Jong-un. What are you thinking? Um, so that, you know, that license seeking process is typically in place for anybody with closed source software, but there's a whole exception to EAR. So long as your code fits within that sort of lower tier of, of EAR, um, it's, there's an exception for publicly available um, information software. And so this, this kind of came about as an answer to, like, universities develop technical information all the time. So the whole point of university is to share that and, you know, share it internationally even. So if it's publicly available in, like, a journal of, of science about, you know, even to some extent nuclear technology, if it's publicly available in a peer-reviewed article, they, they're of the opinion that you don't actually need to seek a license for this thing that anybody could just go and look up in this peer-reviewed journal. And so we kind of piggyback on that. <laughs> Instead, we don't obviously put our stuff in a peer-reviewed journal, but it is freely available. Anybody in the world can roll up and grab our code on, on GitHub or whatever other repository we're using. It's you know, publicly available without any kind of a wall. And so go get you, get you some Cubos. And that gets around that license requirement because it's it's publicly available. And so, open source is really what we have to be because it would be you know, it wouldn't be impossible. It would be really difficult to have to seek a license for you know every every international client we might have to even talk about in any technical detail what we're what we're proposing to work with. For so now, what we do is so long as we can keep our technical discussions publicly available. They don't need a license exception. And it's sort of ridiculous because that amounts to, you know, I can't email Kim Jong-un my code. But Kim Jong-un can just go to this website and grab it. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous, but that's the state of the law, at least for our level of technical sophistication. It would not be the state of the law if you got much more sophisticated than what we're doing. Um, and we don't have any business plans to get there because that would incur all sorts of regulatory liability. Um <laughs> But that's you know that's generally how it works. If we stay within EAR, we can make things publicly available and not seek a license. So, oh man, if like a GitHub repo that has an issue queue, is that technically peer reviewed? No. Oh. 
doesn't have to be peer-reviewed. It just has to be publicly <laughs> available. So is there a, like a type of software that you could uh, would cryptoff- cryptography fall into a higher tier? Yeah, cryptography okay. is... That's actually, you know, what created a lot of this is, is cryptography. Um, that's kind of where some of this, you know, there... I don't know that anybody's really done satellite software to the extent that that we have at Cubos. Really, I mean, it's it's a pretty young and new field, and so we're kind of piggybacking off of the body of law that that open source cryptography left behind because a lot of cryptography is open source to begin with, and so it ran into these same issues that you know you're going to have to encrypt your data, and the way you do it is open source, and so it can't really be export controlled. So let's get rid of this as it applies to software in this way, and we're just kind of you know copying as lawyers are wont to do. <laughs> as all of us <laughs> y'all have a body of law and all these forms we yeah. have stack overflow we were just a few centuries behind on, on creating something that's the same so so david had had pointed me to a podcast episode on this podcast called the change log and I, I, you probably know where i'm going with this yes. um there's a guy uh what's his name richard I have no idea Hub, something this guy who created a database called sqlite and uh, basically, it's in almost every modern device manufactured ever, right? Mm-hmm. So we're talking cell phones, tablets, computers, whatever, servers. Skype. It, Skype. It's Skype. It's, yeah, it's in like inside applications. Um, and so what he did is that his, his isn't just like an open source with a license. It's like public domain. Mm-hmm. And one of the things on the podcast he was talking about is that um, he's like, yeah, I'm just going to make it public domain. No big deal. Um, except there are countries where public domain isn't a thing right and he had a lot of problems with uh you know having to deal with their own like their own regulations or laws around public domain and in addition to that there were companies who despite it being open source and public domain would still request to purchase a license from him for the <laughs> software. Um, in terms, what, what were they doing it for? It was a uh, some kind of like liability issue. Yeah, it's just your due diligence. You have right. to show whenever you're, you know, Cubos ever sold out. We would have to show like we made all this code ourselves. Right. We have a yeah. license to it, or we we created in house, and we can prove that. You know, all of that. Right. It's like a certification to say right. yes, I really did make this. I promise. Even if you pay a dollar for that license, it. You know, it's some lawyer. Some lawyer somewhere was like, you know, pay him a dollar or pay him a thousand dollars. I don't care. Just give me a license. Right. <laughs> These are big, big corporations. So yeah. it's a team of lawyers. Probably. Right. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, do you have any added questions? Are okay. you finished with space? Because my topics are not space related. I have. Okay. I have a. Uh, is yours related to investments? No. Okay. So I have a question. Okay. So, so despite representing Cubos for. Um, and I know we're like using Cubos, but it's kind of like the best argument mm-hmm. we have right now. Um, you also represent, do you represent them in terms of investments and equity and that kind of whole area, like realm? Yeah, I, you know, and there's only so much I can talk about, obviously. There's right. a lot of individual and, and corporations' money and involved, so I can't get too specific. But yes, I did represent them in the last round of, of financing that we closed. <laughs> and so, Going forward, we brought on outside counsel because, I mean, there's a certain level of it can't just be Daniel. <laughs> like it's got, it's got, as we get more sophisticated, we, you know, I will end up bringing in IP lawyers. I'm already looking at IP firms right now, and, and we've got uh, kind of Silicon Valley firms to help us with, with uh, that side of things, with, with raising their next rounds of investment. Cool. 
All right, now I'm done. All right. So my questions are more the uh, Denton world. Mm-hmm. And so um, in at a little dock a few weeks ago, there was a guy there that wanted to start a small tech business. Like it was just going to be himself. And he said, he was asking me like, what sort of entity should I be? And like, how, how will it affect accounting and things? And I said, talk to Daniel and talk to Russell and don't, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I can't give you advice. I know you can't give legal advice. Is there something that you would say uh, so that someone doesn't have to spend money on a lawyer or is first step go spend money on a lawyer? I would say um, if it's just a guy and he just wants to perform services, I would send him to Russell before me, honestly, because Russell is going to give him good tax advice and I'm just going to give him um, lawyer advice, which is to some extent, if you're just an individual, maybe less applicable. Russell's can incorporate. Russell's a CPA, by the way. <laughs> um, CPAs can incorporate businesses. Lawyers and CPAs can both incorporate oh, businesses. So Russell can and can do all that stuff, and he can also tell them like, and this is how you save money on your taxes each year. So I, you know, if it's just a dude, I would send him to to Russell. Um, that'd probably be money better spent. In terms of just taking a shortcut and getting going. Uh, the thing you want to think about is liability. Um, the whole reason you have any kind of corporate entity is is the uh, corporate shield. So you, the idea is that if you strictly adhere to corporate formality, your business will be liable and you will not if you screw something up. Um, and there's all obviously a million ways that that doesn't actually happen in practice. Most creditors insist that you sign to be personally liable for any, any kind of uh, debt you take on. Um, <clears throat> But in terms of like the contracts you enter into, most of the business you make contract with will probably allow you to sign that contract as a corporation, and then you're not personally liable if you end up having to breach that contract because your business fails or something. So that's the whole point of of getting a corporation, an LLC, a C corp, a partnership of you know a limited partnership, whatever it is that that you may decide to get or that may be right for you. Um, and that's really what you want to think about is like, are you gonna incur some amount of liability and does this help you keep your taxes cleaner and your your accounting cleaner um that's kind of the big things to think about and i mean the answers to that pretty quickly yes for anybody as your business gets more sophisticated and once you move beyond like farmer's market level of of business you're gonna (laughs) probably want to do something because it's the barriers to entry are really low uh you can you know most people will if it's a single member llc there's forms on the Secretary of State website that will allow you to, in, you know, incorporate that. There's articles of formation for a single-member LLC that you can use that are free online right now, Secretary of State, Texas Secretary of State, or probably whatever state you're in, that you can just go and file an LLC and start doing that. And that'll be passed through taxation, and it's generally considered to be okay for everybody to, to do an LLC. Um, you should still talk to a CPA about it. Obviously, that's why I say it may be money better spent on Russell. Um, but... It's it's a generally pretty easy, safe way to go to sort of cleave out your your business's taxes and and liability from your own personal stuff. So then if it's a startup and you're taking on investor money, do you think immediately? Yeah, that's when you need a lawyer. Um, You know, you'll still have, like a startup is going to be a team. It's it's pretty rare that you're going to have a startup that's just one person that's going to, you know, with that one person have any expectation to grow very rapidly. Like a startup is going to need a, a team, and it's going to need that team to expand. It's going to need to raise a ton of capital and grow a bunch of users and just grow really quick. And there's only certain entities that, that allow that to happen in the way that you expect it to happen. And that one entity is really a Delaware C Corp. Um, Delaware, not for any specific reason other than that's just what 
you know, that's just what people buy. Like you want to, you want to be a Delaware C Corp just because you know, somebody's going to buy that from you someday, hopefully, and they're going to expect it to be that. And you can convert it into that later, but why do it later when you can do it now? So that's what you're going to be is a Delaware C Corporation in all likelihood. And, and that will involve maybe a worse tax structure. It's not passed through taxation where the income, you know, comes right to your own personal tax return. It's going to have its own tax return. Probably not going to do that S election on there. And there's all there's a whole body of of free forms f- for this kind of entity too. Um, the good thing about the way uh, the way kind of high growth tech startups have evolved is that there's a ton of of free forms that a lot of startups rely on. So you can use convertible debt. Um, generally, if you want to look at it, sort of big picture, you know, what happens, there's a lot of steps in, in between, but generally you're going to incorporate, you're going to have corporate bylaws, you're going to um, declare some amount of stock, probably want it to be in the million, so it's easy to, to divide up. <laughs> people just like a lot of, you know, people like big shares. 100 shares. shares. <laughs> yeah, 100 shares gets weird. <laughs> Tiny fractions of a share. Um, so you're going you're gonna to declare all your stock, you're going to declare your shareholders, you're going to have board meetings, all that stuff. Um, and then you're going to you're going to want to take on investors pretty quickly. And so long as you're, you know, Delaware C Corp, there's a whole pile of forms you can use. And so convertible debt is, is the way most people do what's what you'd think of a friends and family round. Um, and it's really not friends and family for most people. It's really investors that probably going to invest less than a hundred thousand dollars per hit, you know, as, as individuals. And so, what they do is you don't know what your business worth is worth. They don't know what your business is worth. You're not going to know that until you do like a priced round, which is a whole bigger deal. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, so what they do is they'll say, give me a hundred thousand um, dollars of I'll, I'll loan you a hundred thousand dollars basically. And, but what I don't really want is I don't want to be paid back my hundred thousand dollars. I want whenever you do have that priced round, my $100,000 is going to convert into $100,000 worth of stock at whatever price that ends up being. And so that's often coupled with a discount rate. So maybe it's a 20% discount. And so you actually buy $120,000 worth of stock instead of $100,000 because you're you're there early. So you get more stock than maybe your $100,000 should have bought you. And uh, you might have a valuation cap. So maybe you your $100,000 was supposed to buy you a bigger slice of the company. You have more control you, you had in mind when you invested. Um, then it turns out this company is going to give you. Maybe it's like Uber and they're suddenly worth a billion dollars. So you have a valuation cap. And so it's $100,000 with a 20% discount at like a $5 million cap. So your $100,000 is going to buy you a fifth of that company, no matter how much that company is worth. It's a way of sort of giving you again or giving the investor again a bonus for being there early. So that's pretty common um, to use. The, and those are broken down with, um, again, lots of forms that lawyers use. But the most common ones that the industry uses is a KISS or a SAFE. Those are acronyms. If you Google them, they're just like they're spelled. You will see those explained by the lawyers that wrote them. And they're open source, basically, financing um, capital kind of form stock that anybody can use. Um, so what you're doing when you're doing all that is selling equity in your company. And that has a lot of ramifications with, with some people called the SEC. <laughs> 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 and so that's why you end up needing a lawyer is, is, uh, is not like this stuff just, you know, as a practical matter, a lot of times people do just wild kind of founders will just start 
grabbing online forms and writing kisses and safes to whoever. Um, I wonder if that's what our attorney general used. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, yeah, he, just went on Google and was like, well, yeah, whatever. One wonders. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that that's <clears throat> what you can do is if you're making a whole bunch of promises around those kisses and safes, you can end up getting sideways with the SEC, like like Martha Stewart or, or um, you know Ken Paxton or any number of other people got somehow sideways with the SEC about about selling stock without permission. Generally, you need to sell um, to sell your securities to accredited to accredited investors, and those are people that basically are rich. Uh, basically, there's it's not like they went to investor college; it's that they have a lot of money. They made a lot of money last year, and then they're an accredited investor, and so those are the people that can you can sort of safely invest with. But then, even still, you need to disclose kind of every single thing about your company to everybody that invests, and you need to do that in a rigorous and provable way. And you need to declare every round that of, of financing that you do with the SEC, and it's called Form D. All these, um, this kind of accredited investor of less than a certain amount of dollars that you can raise, and these certain, it all fits within exceptions. Um, so you're not doing an IPO and all that, an initial public offering that has a much higher regulatory burden. There's sort of exceptions for smaller rounds that you can fit within, um, and a lot of people do. It's just you probably don't want to do that and on top of learning how to write whatever your product is it's <laughs> this is a lot for most people right. to get all this right uh okay so i have i don't know how much you know about this um so a year or two ago the actually i think this was the reason why we had one of our sponsors at our second bootstrap didn't party was mm-hmm. there's like title four or something yeah. like that which is the whole um crowdfunding kind of way you can raise money and it was basically you don't have to be an accredited investor right. to invest but i think the rule was you have to be in the same same state mm-hmm. right so like i could invest in cubos up you know with like a thousand dollars or five thousand dollars or whatever it is and i don't have to be an accredited investor but i couldn't invest in a company that's outside of texas or yeah like it's not it's not like this would work you know in iowa for iowa companies this would only. This was only, and I, you know, I haven't checked into it. I think it might still only be a Texas thing. Mm. So the SEC um, in in Part D has uh, that title of of the regs that allows for crowdfunding, and we don't mean crowdfunding like Kickstarter or IGG. <laughs> it means like you can have really small, like down to five hundred dollars investments in companies for equity. Um, like a real purchase stock for a very small amount of money for not accredited investors. But as with anything with the SEC, there's all sorts of hoops you have to jump through. Um, The disclosures have to be really good on that site. And it was up to, um, ultimately when this was happening, um, when that guy came and sponsored, it was during the heady days of the Obama administration. And, uh, (laughs) and he, uh, he was kind of dragging his feet on this. Um, So, the SEC, like Congress had passed a law and I think it got signed for whatever reason or something had changed to where they were going to start allowing this this type of investment. Um, but ultimately, it's down to the SEC, which is a, a an administrative agency that's ultimately controlled by the, the president to some extent. And so the the thought, I think, was that this was going to be bad for, for consumers or for small-time investors, that they were going to get fleeced by this crowdfunding deal. And so they were really dragging their feet on creating the necessary like build-out for this to be rolled out nationally. But since it was legal, states could do it individually. And Texas, ever the business-friendly state, 
was ready to do it. So we got after it. <laughs> and we basically said, you know, buy Texans for Texans, you can do this. And, you know, it works because Texas is such a big state. Um, it it kind of, it works. And and so, yeah, you can, I forget, what was the name of that that site? Do you remember? Uh, crowd, crowd something. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about your sponsor. <laughs> It was years ago. Yeah, should have kicked in a few hundred more. But <laughs> but yeah, generally, if you look at those those offerings, um, they're really detailed in terms of you know what they disclose about the company on the website, and they have an opportunity for you to ask questions, um, and you you uh, register on the site and prove your identity uh, and your your residence and stuff like that. And they, I'm sure, have a whole pile of due diligence on the back end with the companies. I know that they, they have real have to be real specific about what they're going to do. And it's not like they can just raise money for the fun of it. Like they have to have a really clear business plan for every dollar they spend. And there's a whole bunch of other protections, but generally if you jump through all those hoops, it's allowable. But at, at a certain point, you know, what I described, I remember when, when Cubos, when we did our due diligence and we finally did our, our first, you know, we closed our first big priced round. Um, the due diligence file we turned over was like, 250 megabytes of PDFs. Wow. <laughs> Which, <laughs> it's not like they were just, you know, big color images. I mean, it's, it's a whole lot of black and white papers that big. And so it's, it's just hard to imagine that, like, that's the way around normally goes. And then you're going to add regulations to that and expect small businesses and, and you know, $500 investors to comply with that. It's no no wonder that maybe didn't blow up for everybody. It's probably asking a lot. Yeah. I think they said crowdfunding in general is kind of taking a downturn anyways. But, yeah. yeah. Well, I think now uh, cryptocurrency is going to be the next attempt to uh, let yeah. anyone fund things. I've, I've read a blog post. And I don't understand cryptocurrency, really. I just I can't wrap my mind around it. But I read something about how... There's a new thing called Kin, which is a currency for the Kick messaging app. And then somehow they're going to create this Kin so that people will jump on board in order to fund their thing. And so they're making something out of nothing, saying it has value. And then I don't, I don't know how it works from there. That's so weird. I don't really claim to understand like the blockchain and like the technical side of how all that works, but. I have heard, I, w- I want to say it's called Ethereum. Does that sound right. like a real yeah. one? I have some. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's blown up. <laughs> yeah, and there's like major financial industry players that are getting involved in that. Right. And apparently they have um, they have contracts that you can do, you know, through the blockchain, which to me as a lawyer is pretty fascinating that you're going to be able to, you know, write contracts that allegedly don't need any kind of, or, you know, don't admit of any kind of interpretation or, or Sort of. See, I can't understand how that would possibly happen. It's like there's people involved still, so it's going to be messy. So, well, the way I understand it, and it couldn't possibly work for all kinds of contracts, but for some kind of contracts, it could work. The way I understand it is, you have what they call an oracle that operates the the condition of the contract. So, let's say you know, Shepherd Dog has a, a deal with. Um, with, I don't know, uh, Atomic Candy to get them to a certain search rate. So you would write some sort of, of bot that would be the oracle for this, for this contract. And if you know, that bot detects within the, the time frame that the search rank has been achieved and these agreed upon parameters, then the, you know, basically an escrow exchange happens and it automatically transfers 
Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever it is from one account to the other. Oh. And then, you know, you all kind of agree to take that bot as is. And there's no going, no take backsies and you're stuck with it. That's the result. You agreed to it. You can't get out of it. That's so it crazy. has to be very clear cut. Yeah, it would have to be something that would be really objectively determinable right. like that. You know, something that could be done with computer precision online. Right. But there's a lot of contracts like that. It's just, you know, right. I can tell you it's a small percentage of the total amount of contracts that get done, but it wouldn't, right. be, wouldn't be nothing. Right. Yeah, and I think uh, I was listening to a podcast. They were talking about maybe marriage and maybe uh, some land transfer type. Yeah, that stuff. Possibly. Yes. <laughs> no <laughs> way. <laughs> I think part of the legal field is leaving things vague. Like yeah, that's, that's it, intentional. Like if you can get away with it being vague, then you've won. <laughs> right. For yeah. your side, at least. Yeah, ambiguity <laughs> so, has right. you know it's a strategic thing. Sometimes, sometimes it's a lazy thing, but sometimes it's there purposefully, and just. Marriage, like marriage is ever going to be. <laughs> There's going to be some marriage oracle that tells you whose fault the divorce was. Right. I just cannot imagine how that could ever be possible. Yeah, just put it in know. the parameters, Daniel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just make a bot. Well, and they were saying, like, you could maybe use a third-party person as that oracle instead of a bot, but well, then you're... But that's what we do, and that person's all, called a judge. Right, and so how's that... <laughs> Different. So I guess maybe recording it on the blockchain yeah. would make sense instead of having it in a county record. But I, that's why I can't wrap my mind around yeah. it because I, I just, I just. Well, and you know, there's just a million like probate. You ever going to get people out of probate? I mean, obviously, you could escrow people's money in Bitcoin and then pay it to their heirs when they're dead. But what if the heirs killed the the testator? Like, then what happens? Right. <laughs> the big, they're still dead. You know, it's always just really obvious examples like that. You know, it's just hard to imagine a, a AI of some sort sophisticated enough to deal with all the ways people will, will screw right. each other. Yep. Yep. Um, so Daniel's got a VR game to go home and play. Okay. So mm-hmm. I can't ask my other question? Well. Is that what you're saying? Ask your other question. Okay. <laughs> Since I prepped you ahead of time, you might have been thinking about it anyway. Okay, so. Are there any you know, anything related to laws, regulations, or anything in the city, county, or state that you believe could make it easier to start a tech up, tech startup or small business? And I want to give my example of one that I hate is sales tax and the way it impacts my business because we do client work. And so mm-hmm. almost everything we do is sales taxable and it's large amounts of money, which data feels ridiculous. Data processing. Yeah, data processing. If you like maintain an app, like after we sell an app, that there's no... Or like uh, building an app for someone, there's no sales tax. But then if we maintain it for them, there is sales tax. And so there's, uh, are there anything like in this sort of thing that you think that we could do? Maybe, maybe Tech Mill needs to start lobbying the city for or something like that. You know, I mean, that's a good one, obviously, because as, as ridiculous, like what I provide for people is is words on on pdfs <laughs> by and large and you provide you know code on whatever medium and for some reason i'm not subject to any sales tax and you're subject to sales tax right. for no discernible reason uh so yeah that's a good one because i can't imagine what the difference really is um but yeah you know i don't have a great i think texas in its own way does a pretty good job as a business climate i think denton what Denton needs and what the city could do for Denton is continue to support this space we're in. Um, right. Stoke is obviously a, a good thing for Denton. Um, people come here. We have all the hard things figured out in this town. We have, you know, creatives. We have uh, education. We have 
town people that want to live here and it seems pretty straightforward to just buy that last piece where you can come and work somewhere centrally so that's a a pretty obvious one to me too um you know education seems like the one that that i think is probably the best you know the best role for our our city and our, our county and state to get more involved with is just educating people on how to start a business but how to do technical things i mean it seems like i'm thinking back on my own public education it just this was almost completely absent unless you went and sought it out and it's one of the last places where you can build something yourself you know you're not going to start a retail business that can compete with amazon you're not going to start many businesses on your own that can compete with the giant you know silos of industry that that dominate whatever that field may be uh but you can still write some application that's competitive um that's still out there for you and i think to the extent that we aren't educating people we're we're missing that i like it it's a good answer mm-hmm. okay do i have to ask the last question since i phrase it better yes okay Last question. What advice would you give to someone starting out in your industry or still in school to get where you are today? Hmm. Space lawyer, space family lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> Interpret it as broadly <laughs> as you want. Didn't space family lawyer. Watch um, a lot of Star Trek. Yeah. Star Trek would be, <laughs> Star Trek would be a good start. Um, I would say take risks, show up. Those are probably the biggest ones. Uh, we have a, a society where I think people don't show up and get involved. I mean, a lot of the things I've done have just been, I've been generous with my time. I've showed up and, and wanted to meet people and get involved and help my community. And that's the only type of marketing that's really effective for a lawyer. And it's how you get to do what you want to do as a lawyer, I think. I mean, like I said before, you're no kind of lawyer unless you have a client. And so you have, if you want to be a space lawyer, you have to have a space client or you're just, you're just <laughs> reading you be really boring lawyer. books until you, <laughs> until you have a client. You're just, you know, it doesn't really matter. So I would say show up. Um, every generation before us, I think, if there's anything they did better, it's not hard work or less entitlement. It's that they showed up. They got involved. I mean, if you show up to local civic organizations you will inherit the world there is a whole generation of people eager to pass on their organization to any fresh face that is willing to show up whether that be elks or eagles or masons or um kiwanis or rotary or you know any number of city boards or commissions or county boards or commissions or your school or your church or you know, sports team there's a whole generational gap of people that need to show up just show up you don't have to be that special at anything if you happen to be a lawyer it's really easy to show up and because <laughs> everybody needs a lawyer so it's really easy to just show up and meet a lot of people and get to ultimately do what you want so long as you're not a jerk about things and you'll you know eventually get right where you want to be that was a good answer was it was very good <laughs> Uh, well, I think that's all we have for today. Man, we are like right at 59 minutes, too. Is there anything that you want to say that you didn't get a chance to yet? Uh, no. Oh. Excellent. No, I'm going to go home and play some Star Trek. <laughs> Isn't it also your son's birthday? Six month birthday? I mean, birthday? six month birthday. That yeah, <laughs> doesn't really count. That's not a real thing. <laughs> You're like, I'm going to go play Star Trek. Anyways. Yeah, he's going to be asleep. He'll, he'll forgive me. Um, well, cool. Well, um, if people don't want to find you in the 
courtroom, where can they find you <laughs> online or anywhere else? I didn't want to get a hold of you. That's you, the case. Uh, my firm's website, my, my law firm is Springer and Lyle, and it's springer-lyle.com, and you'll be able to find all my work contact information there. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. My my status is pretty wide open in terms of privacy. Twitter, uh, DF underscore Abasolo. And that's probably all the places. Cool. Well, hopefully, if they are in a courtroom with you, they're on the same side. So. Hopefully. It's, <laughs> I'm generally bad news unless you meet me on one of those channels. <laughs> probably having a bad day if you meet me any other way. Uh, cool. Well, thanks for joining us today. Um, once again, this is the Tech Mom Podcast. We do this every two weeks. Uh, like and subscribe. And uh, we I, we have five five star we ratings. Fi- right we're now. a five star rated Ooh, five yes. star rated. Yeah, so make sure you Big get time. get those yes. reviews in only stuff. if they're five stars. Yes, <laughs> don't ruin up our ratings. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, that's all we got for today. Thanks, guys. Bye bye bye. Whoa, whoa, what happened there? In my left. We're gonna, yeah, that just... It's, <laughs> so it's stereo and then mono. Okay. <laughs> I like mono better. Mono is much better. Oh, it's This nothing. is no. It's, it's okay. okay. I'm just making sure all my buttons are right. My can you buttons. turn up my knob a little bit? Because I can barely you're, hear. You're no, game? not that one. The other one, the headphones. Oh, the headphones? Yeah. Oh, What's I that? can... This is going to be like an arms race. Yes. <laughs> now turn up mine more. <laughs> I just want to hear me. Okay, I still can't hear me. It's okay. Is that a... I'm good. I can hear you. I'll just talk like I this. I can also hear you. I'll just keep it. <sighs> I have the best blooper material. <laughs> <laughs>